We're going to pray for a church in town because hopefully you know we love doing that. We love praying for our family and all of its diversity as it meets around Flagstaff. And today we're going to pray for our family that meets at uh, Flagstaff Church of the Nazarene. And they go by Flag Naz because they're cool like that. And uh, their uh, their president, (laughs) their pastor is uh, Brian Spencer. And so uh, we're going to pray for all of them but uh, and, and Brian and his family. If you're the praying type, join me and we'll lift up. Flag Nass. <clears throat> God, thank you uh, for this joint season in the liturgical year um, for Advent candles and preparing our hearts for Christmas. And uh, I'm so thankful for Brian's wisdom and leadership and everyone that meets together over at Flag Nass. Uh, we love them. And we know you love them even more. And we just pray that, uh, as always, draw us closer to them and uh, as we're all kind of just trying to figure out what it looks like to follow you. And uh, we also pray today, as we open up your scriptures, as always, please put us to the side and open up our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I thought today was a beautiful day, last couple days, actually. 51 degrees in December here is like summer magic. I hope you've got to enjoy that a little bit. I, I am actually compelled to open today with a fantasy football story. So run for the exits if you want, but I have to because last week I actually celebrated my 40th birthday, which to some of you seems really, really young and to some of you probably really, really old. And uh, <coughs> there was a surprise birthday party that my wife, uh, with the help of Greta and Cassie, put together for me at McMillan's. And it was so great seeing a bunch of you and friends there. <clears throat> but the, that was great and all, friendship, community, whatever. But there was the Monday Night Football game was on at the same time. And uh, I had a very small chance of winning in the playoffs. And I was playing against Brian Graham, who's playing guitar up here. And towards the end of the night, after everyone was leaving, I went over to a couple friends, and there was only two and a half minutes left in the game. And my app was telling me there was a 97% chance I was going to lose. There's only two and a half minutes after the whole weekend. And Brian Graham, who is a saint, walked over to me and he said, kind of in his victory over me in the playoffs. He said, hey, because it's your birthday, I'm, I'm willing that this three per chance, chance comes through. And as he says that, my running back breaks free again and again and again and scores a touchdown, which isn't enough, but I have a defense in. They hit the quarterback, fumbles my defense scores after blocking a kick. And in the last two and a half minutes, in an unbelievable swing, I won by one point because Brian Graham has superpowers and he wished it to me for my birthday which was the greatest gift I could possibly have. I just, I wanted to honor him today with that story. And I also am going to try, for the first time ever, usually I, a few times a year, vomit about fantasy football onto you for just because I can. But I'm actually going to try to use it in an analogy today in just a minute when we come to the scriptures. And I hope it'll help us kind of see where I'm trying to um, have a conversation together about this Advent season. I also yesterday, uh, I had a really good amount of time yesterday afternoon to hang out with my kids and they wanted to watch a movie. And I said, that's fine, but we're, we're going to watch a movie that I pick. And so I picked the movie Hoosiers. Uh, do you guys like the movie Hoosiers? Is that, that also might make me seem old to some of you. I love the movie Hoosiers. My dad was a basketball coach growing up, and I love just the feel of like, of course, it was made in 1986, but it was about this uh, little town, Hickory, Indiana, in 1951, and the feel of it in the fall. I just love everything about it, the kind of 80s synthesizer music, some of the most emotional scoring any film has ever had, ever. Um, I couldn't wait for my kids to see it. Well, when I turned it on, they were immediately mad that it was old. They could tell from the credits at the beginning that this was from the 80s. 
And then when they saw the first car come on the screen from the 50s, Aspen about lost it. She's like, how old is this? What are you making us go through? But they actually really, really enjoyed it. And, and, I, and I, what I also loved is she knew that it was a sports movie. She goes, oh, so it's a sports movie, so it's going to end in some championship, and the good guys are going to win, right? And I was like, eh, shut your mouth. Just watch the movie. But what, what, what I like about sometimes cheesy, predictable sports movies is those moments that you, you feel it. You get excited. You get wrapped up into it. But I particularly like when Gene Hackman is kind of going into each of these games, and he kind of gives this speech preparing the team for their big game. And it was always different in the movie. He had different speeches to give. But what I was thinking is, in a way, that's kind of what Advent is. As I was thinking about today as we come to the third week of Advent, and we're lighting these candles that represent the light of the season of preparing our hearts for the incarnation of Christmas next week. In a way, we're, we're getting our preparation speech. We're kind of getting fired up or, or focusing on what we need to focus on to prepare our hearts for what lies ahead. Now, here's where I want to try to make the fantasy football analogy. We're going we're gonna to stray off the script a little bit. For months and months and months, we've been sticking to the gospel of Luke, the ancient physician, uh, the great historian, and his stories of his friend that he knew in the person of Christ. And today, we're actually going to shift Gospels because we've looked at all of Luke's main Christmas-type passages. But today, we're going to go to Matthew. And when we do that, here's the thing that I want to challenge you to do. Because what I do, because I'm a human, and what you do, because you're a human, is anytime we hear a story, we hear it through a lens of our preconceived notions. We, we can't help but do that. And so when we come to the Christmas story, sometimes we're unaware of the lenses through which we look at it. We look at it backwards through the Reformation and through Augustine and through some of the great doctors of the Catholic Church that have come since then. And because of that, a lot of times it loses its raw, earthy power of what it would have been like in the first century when Matthew wrote this story. Because we often look at it through the lens of Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox theology, and we sometimes miss just the story side of it, just the, the very earthy physicalness, which is what incarnation is all about. And here's the fantasy football analogy that I'm so proud of myself for. As I was watching that game Monday night, I was looking through the lens of fantasy football. I actually didn't care at all about the Seattle Seahawks. The lens that I looked through was a fantasy lens. No one in the world cares, including you, if I win fantasy football or not. But for me, I was looking through that lens at, at a real game. And I'm afraid what we do sometimes is we have a fantasy interpretation of Christmas and many stories of the life of Christ because we don't get how rooted they were with real human beings and communicate a real sort of truth that transformed those human beings 2,000 years ago and the simple truth that it can kind of echo into our lives 2,000 years later. So let's go to Matthew together. Now, Matthew is interesting. We've talked a lot about Luke over the last several months. Matthew was kind of known in the early iconography of the church. He was, he was the man. So there was Luke was the ox. You know, I don't know if you remember when we show you these images because there's kind of these four images. John is the, is the eagle and, and Mark is the lion. But Matthew is, is, a, is a human face. And it's because he, he focused so much on the humanity of Jesus and the Jewishness of Jesus. And so when we're reading Matthew, we need to remember that he's writing to a very educated Jewish audience, and he's trying to show them specifically that Jesus, who he knew, remember he's Levi, the tax collector, also goes by Matthew later, he wants them to know that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, whereas in John, the eagle from 30,000 feet, you get so clearly that, that Jesus in some way embodies God the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and Luke, as we've been, has showed us this social aspect of Jesus and his care for the outsider and the marginalized and the broken. Matthew's writing to this 
Jewish audience. Now, the reason I wanted to jump into Matthew today is mainly because of the Magi or the wise men. They're not in Luke's story. And what Advent season or Christmas season is complete without looking at who these strange characters are. Let's start in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. And just so you know, the, the birth of Jesus has already happened here. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now this opening paragraph here has a lot to unpack because just like Luke in Luke chapter 2, he begins with the setting. And oftentimes one of the things that we forsake or, or seem to forget is that the setting takes up more words from these ancient historians than the actual birth of Jesus, which actually comes pretty quickly in both of the gospel accounts that talk about the nativity. And in the setting, we have a whole lot of geopolitical realities that are being talked about. First of all, we have to understand who King Herod was. Now, this is really, really important for what we're going to read today. King Herod called himself the king of the Jews, and he kind of was as the right arm of the Roman Empire. If you weren't here last week, we talked a lot about the empire of Rome and how its, its boot of oppression was right on the neck of the Jewish people. And we need to talk a little bit more about that today as Matthew sets up his story. Just again, so we're not looking through our lenses of, of high theology of church throughout the years, but what these early readers would have heard. And early on, they would have understood, when they heard the name Herod, they would have felt a visceral response to one of the most hated political figures of the entire Middle East. Herod was a monster, and he came from a long line of monsters and people who were born into power. His, his, his father, whose name was Antipater, was also an oppressive king that was sold his soul to the Romans so that he could rule over this very valuable piece of land that still to this day is so conflictual because of its kind of middle trade route between Europe and Asia and Africa. And so Herod got power by really selling out to the Romans. Caesar Augustus, who was the first of all the Caesars to call himself the Son of God or take the name of divinity, who, like we talked about last week, proclaimed the good news of the peace of Rome, Herod saw his hope for power in joining with the Romans. Now, this is the piece that's different than last week. What we have to understand about the Roman Empire as it was trying to spread to the east is it was bumping up against conflict to another power, the Persian Empire. So think back of like Xerxes or the movie 300. There's this kind of strange political world of the, in the past of empires, just like there is today of, of China or Russia or Brazil or America kind of competing empires. Back then there were competing empires and, and the Persians were also laying claim to the people of Israel or Judea as it's called. And so Herod knew that he couldn't just have as his father had, the people of Judea. So he partnered with Caesar Augustus. He went to Rome. He went with his navy. He rode over to Italy, and he stood next to Caesar Augustus as they proclaimed him the king of the Jews in great pomp and circumstances. And then they lent him battalions to come and absolutely decimate Jerusalem and push all of the Persians out so that Rome would expand their kingdom under this kind of puppet figure who was Herod. He was horrific. We know from Josephus and Cicero and Herodotus and other Roman writers, I know you love history class, you're loving this, 
But what we know is that he even killed his own sons because of his paranoia of power. He killed not only his own sons, almost famously towards the end of his life, which is around the time Jesus was born, right after Jesus was born. He had some of the most influential men from every village in Judea round up together, and he had them killed on the day that he died so that the nation would mourn for him. That's the kind of sick, twisted narcissist that King Herod was. And so when Matthew's writing this, people are going, oh, Herod, this is the worst of the worst. And then it says, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Some of your Bibles might say kings or wise men. That's much later translations. The, the word magi comes from the Latin magus, and it's where we get our words magician and things like that. But this is a very easy word to translate because magi were major figures in the ancient world. And they were from, guess where? Persia. Now, they, they were kind of famous in all kingdoms. The Hellenistic Greek culture was fascinated by these Zoroastrians. Zoroastrianism was a, a religion in the East that had a huge influence on Judaism in kind of the Babylonian captivity period, and specifically their, their belief in one great positive God and one great evil God. It started to kind of help the Jewish people evolve their ideas of what Hasatan means, but that's another sermon at another time. But as these kind of religious worlds blend together, as they do in this story, these Zoroastrians from the East who were astrologers and alchemists, so they believed there were signs in the heavens, and then they had power. And this is the most important piece that I think we miss. One of the reasons that the term king comes into later church fathers in the third and fourth century is because they did have political power. In fact, if you go back and read Herodotus and you read about Xerxes, Xerxes always had to go to the Magi and ask their permission for certain battles, and they would look to the sky. There's one infamous story of when there was a full eclipse of the sun, and that's when the Magi gave Xerxes authority to go and continue to conquer as his kingdom spread because he needed the religious authority of the Magi. So these were the inner court of Xerxes and other Persian leaders, and they had political influence. And so they actually had a very political reason to be interested in someone out there being born the king of the Jews. I just want you to really, really grasp how rooted in real history these events were to try to get a little bit of why someone would travel all these miles to see the king of the Jews or why Herod would do the things that he's about to do in all of this. <clears throat> they said, Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, I don't know if any of you by chance got to go to Lowell Observatory last night, but Lowell Observatory every year puts on a presentation on the star of Bethlehem. Any of you guys go to that? Nobody? It's like 15 bucks. It's probably worth it, though. I, I went a couple years ago, and it's really, really neat I experience because, you know, you have these very secular, non-religious astronomers at Lowell talking about kind of the celestial events that happened in 4 BC or 6 BC that, that could have been interpreted as the Star of Bethlehem. And, and a lot of people talk about this. There's different theories. It could have been a comet. It also could have been something supernatural outside of what we would find in measurable science. But when we turn back the clock and rewind with all of our software what the skies looked like back then, there was a rising event where Jupiter went in retrograde motion right in Leo, which is this constellation. So to the ancient world, it would have looked like this three planets together, which would be like a star rising kind of in the western sky. People from the east who were astrologers would have said, oh, the king of planets, Jupiter, is in Leo, the kingly constellation, and they would start moving towards this interpretation of astrology. But again, that's kind of a, that's kind of a side note. But that might have been what was going on, and these astrologers head this way. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, why would King Herod be disturbed? He's paranoid. 
He's a narcissist. He kills his own sons with the thought that they might become, and not only his own sons, he killed 300 of their friends at the same time to make sure no one tried to become the king of the Jews. And so when they hear someone, when Herod hears someone specifically say, hey, there's a king of the Jews being born, which was kind of this resistance level hope, this was kind of this messianic Jewish of the people rising and for the Persians who had an outside interest saying, we would love power to stay in the east and see the, the whole empire of Rome push back. Herod was understandably disturbed. And it says all of Jerusalem with him. Now, it's interesting to note kind of the, the way that the economics and politics of the first century worked in Roman Palestine. These Palestinian Jews were part of an agrarian society, and they were heavily taxed with tribute, which is a lot about what Luke was talking about, to the Roman Empire. But the actual structure was that the metropolitan area of Jerusalem was mostly people who were aristocrats and who were on the inside who were tied to Herod. In fact, what Herod did almost immediately, about 30 years before the birth of Christ, is he put his own Jewish priesthood of these four influential families, you can actually really read some interesting stuff from the decades before the birth of Christ, that would actually be the new fake high priests of Second Temple Judaism, and everyone couldn't stand them. So all of Jerusalem here is not talking about the Jewish people by blood, and I bring that up because sometimes we have to hint at and talk about the darkness of Christian history. There has been times where people have horrifically used the Gospels in anti-Semitism. They try to point to certain verses and say, see, Jews rejected Jesus, and so they're the bad guys, which is not the message. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. The Jewish people were being oppressed, these agrarian people, but Jerusalem was kind of the power center. And so oftentimes, uh, ancient authors would use Jerusalem euphemistically in the same way we would use Washington. We might say, one thing is to say, hey, I'm going to Washington, D.C. to visit family. That's another thing. But it's another thing to say, oh, I get so disgusted with Washington. That that means government. That means the insiders, right? The same is true here. So Herod and all of Jerusalem were disturbed because there was whispering among oppressed people. There was a hope kind of making its way through these oppressed people that a new king was going to be born. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, and then it, it quotes here from Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now remember, Matthew is writing to an audience, and he's wanting them to connect the dots. They know the prophecies of the minor prophets like Micah. They know what people were thinking about Messiah. And he's kind of laying the setting that Jesus fulfills all this with his birth in Bethlehem. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I, may, I too may go and worship him. Now, you don't have to have any biblical knowledge to pick up on the snakery of Herod in this comment. No one reading this story without any context would think that Herod actually wanted to go worship this child. The one thing I would point out, though, is he understood an element of worship being part of what these magi, these Persian Zoroastrian astrologers, were coming to do. 
Now, Magi would have been familiar in their own political context of bowing down to a king in a sort of deity-type way because they viewed in the Eastern kind of Zoroastrian religion their rulers as kings that were divine. But they understood and hoped to be a part of kind of joining together with this new movement in Roman Palestine that might come against it. And, and Herod fakes like he also wants to worship the divinity of this baby. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, I want to I pause and, and focus on just this emotional word, overjoyed. Uh, a lot of that that I've been kind of spitting out has been kind of academic and historical, and I think it's really important. But what makes these stories kind of flow down through history to us isn't all that detail. It's the emotive language. It's whatever connects to the inner part of us. And whoever these magi were and all of their strange kind of pagan rituals and interest in politics or whatever it was, whenever they encountered Christ in this experience of the star, whatever it was, they were overjoyed. Now, the reason I pause here is because that's actually the theme of this Advent Sunday. In fact, in more liturgical traditions, this is called the, the gaudete, G-A-U-D-E-T-E. -E. It's, it's a Latin word for rejoice. And, and if you remembered, I don't know if you remember Brian's reading from the liturgical calendar and Liz's reading, the Zephaniah passage in, in chapter 3 was rejoice, O Israel. And then it talks about God rejoicing over us. And Liz read the, read the really famous passage from Philippians 4, 4 through 7, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. And then it goes on to say, because the Lord is near. And today's theme of Advent Sunday is joy and rejoicing. And for these this month, I've been talking a lot about light and liberation and love. We started with love. Last week we talked about liberation. And today and next week we're going to talk a lot about light and joy. And I think it's kind of cool that we have lit up joy from the other church here. We just benefit from all of their uh, decorations, which is great. But the Magi were overjoyed when they encountered someone from another culture and another religion. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Again, Matthew, whose most of his gospel is to focus on the humanity of Jesus, it's an overstatement to say that he, he didn't ever focus on the divinity of Jesus. Now, a lot of theologians throughout time have said, oh, this is supposed to be a picture of how pagans are laying down their religion and they're turning their hearts toward Christ, the hope of all the world. And I don't actually mean to say that in some demeaning way. I think there's definitely some truth to that. I think Matthew did intend to show this, that Christ was for all people. And remember the, the Lucan accounts that we've been reading. Every announcement, every song is that it's the hope for all people, including Easterners and Zoroastrians and the Hellenistic Greek and the Romans. It's liberation for everyone. And so they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. There's so much fun things you can read about in history. Why did they gold and myrrh and frankincense? Many theologians think that gold is a, a symbol of kingship, and, and frankincense, this incense, is, a, is, a, is a, a symbol of the divine, as you have a priest with smoke and incense lifting up things to God. And myrrh is this burial ointment, and it's a, it's a sign of his death, a pretending even at his birth that death was going to be tied together in all of this. 
There's all sorts of great things we can think about. The early church had names for these guys, Balthasar and Casper, but, but in Matthew's gospel, we don't even know that there are three. There are three gifts, but we don't know how many. There, there's many Orthodox Christians that believe there were 20 magi that came to this visit. What we do know is they were real individuals, and they represented a real political power and a religious tradition and they were part of this kind of Matthew and Luke bubbling under the surface of resistance against the powerful crushing the poor. And they came and they laid down in humility at the feet of one of the most humble images that any human has ever thought up for the divine. A very third world, oppressed, weak, bloody child. This is the great paradox of Christmas, and everything that I want to talk about for the so what today of why any of this matters to us is about paradox. Here's why. To me, Christmas is paradox. Somehow the divine in, in a food trough. Somehow uh, the, the, the sheer pain and screams and earthiness of birth with the entrance of the light of God and incarnation, the divinity in the things that we touch and see and feel and smell, but here's my concern. I hear stories of people a lot, and my particular job, I'm very thankful for my job. In fact, this week I had, un, uh, I had dozens of meetings with some of you in here and different people in the community, and sometimes it's stories of great grief from the loss of a, a loved one, great fear in a, in a breaking or hurting relationship, great hope at the birth of a child, it's just a, it's a privilege to get to have a job where those, those life moments are there. But my concern is that you might have wandered in here today and stumbled onto an unwitting preacher talking about joy and happiness on Rejoice Sunday, and your life might be filled with hell on earth right now. That's what I want to talk about. See, this story goes on to tell of one of the most grotesque human things that ever happens. They flee as immigrants to Egypt because Matthew wanted to make a, a very clear tie that these were continued to be a, a poor, oppressed family, and they couldn't return. And, and Herod actually slaughtered, the slaughter of the innocents, all the young children to and under in Bethlehem because that's when the Magi came, probably two years after the birth of Christ, scholars believe, in a sort of horrific genocide. In, in years past, this Sunday has come up like we just celebrated, not celebrated, unfortunately, as we just remembered Sandy Hook one of the events in my lifetime that stripped me to the core, uh, brought me to the deepest questions of evil and good. And, and this story includes that, Herod and his sickness, that he would do something like that. So where is rejoicing and where is hope in this? Matthew wanted people to think about coming back from Egypt. He wanted these Jewish listeners to remember the exodus, this liberation idea. But where is the hope when our life has so much darkness in it? Unfortunately, I don't have the answer for that other than I believe it resides in the person of Jesus and the story of Christmas. That in the middle of all of the darkness in the setting of this story, those people, whether or not they had the right expectations of what Messiah would be, they witnessed the entrance of God to the story. They witnessed one who would bring peace that passes all understanding, as the Philippians passage says. And, it, and they witnessed, as that Philippians 4 reading from today said, we rejoice because the Lord is near. And that's the phrase that I want us to think about. As painful as life is, 
rejoicing and joy is not the same thing as just happiness or flippancy or, or a positive attitude that gets you through the day. None of those things are bad. But I sense amongst the current generation, and, and I sense even in all of human psychology, uh, a sickness with inauthenticity. I sense an attraction to things that are authentic and real and face real pain and talk about it. And I know that in my own life, I'm always drawn to true joy. People who exhibit hope in the darkest situations. I, I think of there's a group of ministers right now in Tijuana who are meeting with the caravan because they, they have a joy that's hopeful because they want to bring love and be Christ to these people who are numbered, waiting on their turn to hear from asylum. I, I think about stories of the Sandy Hook parents who've gone out and given their life after losing a kindergarten child because they had some sort of joy that isn't just cheap happiness, some sort of rejoicing that is rooted in hope that, that I hope I never have to understand. See, joy and rejoicing and light and hope, they're not cheap, they're not fake, but they're, they're really, really deep. Trey, do you have that poem from Wordsworth? British uh, poet Williams Wordsworth, part of one of his poems, Tintern Abbey, he says, with, with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. Sometimes I like to turn to poetry because poets have a way of, of using words that talk about how you have a joy that sees into the life of things. And so if you came in today and, and you're filled with great circumstances and, and reasons to celebrate, I hope that, that that's good and you have a thankfulness and a gratefulness. That's kind of how I feel. I have a lot going on and just feel fortunate to live in this free country and have the things that we have and and health, but a lot of us come in today and, and we don't have health, or someone we love doesn't, or there's a pain of a breaking relationship, or we're so heavenly, healthily burdened by some of the dark evil in our world that we say, where is the hope? That's why I'm still drawn to Jesus, is that it keeps being birthed into this world, divinity in the darkest places. Hope that's real, that transcends just circumstantial ups and downs and ebbs and flows. Hope that has always had its voice from the most oppressed people. Hope that turns peace into an action, peace that passes understanding. So that the Christmas season, we have this paradox. And what I love is that this third Advent Sunday always falls right near the winter solstice. We're so close to the darkest day of the year, and yet we say, this Sunday, the church around the globe says we rejoice right next to the winter solstice. On the longest, darkest day, we recognize that light has the final word because it's birthed into our planet, into our story, and for us individually, it can be birthed into us. The last thought as we come to the communion table, and the reason I love coming back to the Magi story every year, is that simple reminder that Christ has always been for everyone. Even Zoroastrian astrologers from Persia and Roman emperors and rich tax collectors and prostitutes and broken people, fast forward 2,000 years, Republicans and Democrats, broken people in every way, divorced people, married people, single people, LGBT people, fill in the blank. If you have human DNA, Christ is for you.
That's why we, we love the idea of church for everyone because we're just trying to connect to the idea that God has always been for everyone, a deeper hope, a deeper joy. And I want to invite you into that. As we come to the communion table today, I'm reminded there's, there's so many things that we can look at as we partake in this really religious sacrament. Um, the thing that I want us to focus on today is that in the biblical tradition, wine was always an image of joy. And so Christ commanded us to do this in remembrance of him. It was his idea for us to share this meal together, to take his body and blood into us in a very physical way, this in incredible gospel, which is a good news, so much better than the violent Roman Empire and Caesar Augustus could offer. It was so much better because it was based in love, unconditional love, and it's offered to everyone. And so as we take the communion table today, today I hope that you have a, a conversation with God and with each other as we leave here today about what true joy is and what's Christ's connection to that. How is the birth of God 2,000 years ago still birthing into our lives? and into each other's lives in the way that we love each other and share the sacrament and community and scriptures. Let me pray over these elements. We celebrate an open table. We believe all are welcome at the table of the Lord. Also optional. You shouldn't feel compelled. I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll share the sacrament. Lord, I'm thankful today for Matthew and his gospel. I'm thankful for um, a mysterious group of travelers who would follow the stars and find themselves at the feet of a, of a child. And we believe, Lord, in this Christmas season and in incarnation, God become flesh. And as we come to this sacrament, which is such a gift that we're so thankful for, Lord, as we approach with gratitude, um, we believe that you became flesh, and at this table we receive that into us, Christ in us. And in doing so, we receive the forgiveness of sins. For we believe none of us, none of us can outsend your love. It's too big, and we remember that today as example, as shown on the cross. And as we take your body and your blood into us, we also remember this wine is also joy, deep, true joy that transcends, that sees into the life of things, joy that, that makes us uh, more alive and look more like you. Thank you for this gift of a sacrament. Please meet us here in Jesus' name.